Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our Lord, we want to thank you that your Word speaks, is living and active, uh, is like a double-edged sword able to pierce down into our very being of who we are. But Lord, knowing your Word does that is not enough. We need the work of your Spirit this morning to come upon us and to open our hearts to pay close attention to it. We believe that your Word makes us wise for salvation that leads us and trains us in righteousness, helps us to live a right life before you that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so this morning, Lord, I ask for clear speech, clear words for us. Lord, I ask for open hearts and I ask for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit as we look upon Jesus through it. We pray this now in his name. Amen. Well, we're in a series here at City Reach Marion, going through the book of Daniel. We're in the second half of the book of Daniel, whereas where things get a little bit apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic literature, so we need to recognize there's been a genre change. First half of the book of Daniel, it's narrative, historical narrative. Second part of the book of Daniel is apocalyptic. There's a lot of metaphors that what you'll see in our chapter today, there's a vision, And then there's an interpretation. And that's typically what you see uh, in apocalyptic literature. You see visions and then there's an interpretation. What does this mean? And so part of the purpose of this morning is to give us an understanding, what does this mean? What you'll see uh, in our text is it covers similar themes to what we saw in Daniel chapter 7 last week, talking about historical events, the rise and fall of human kingdoms, as we, uh, as we see in history from about the time that Daniel was in Babylon, so we're talking around about 600 uh, BC and uh, towards uh, the coming of Jesus. Uh, during that time, the, the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire Then we see the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is uh, in our text. Uh, Then we see the rise and fall of the Greek Empire. And there's a particular focus uh, this morning on the Greek Empire, which uh, is referred to uh, as this horn, this one horn that goes and rushes around over the land and seems to conquer all that's before it. And we remember that that is Alexander the Great, who's sort of written into history, having conquered most of the known world by about the time he was 32, as the first great uh, Greek king and general. Then after he died, uh, his sons were killed. That's what he did back then. And uh, his kingdom was split into four, which we see four horns rise up. Uh, His kingdom was split into four and taken on by four of his generals. Uh, and then over uh, a certain amount of time, uh, round about uh, 167 BC, so we're getting closer to the time of Jesus, another king rose up, one who was a bit cunning, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we're going to spend a bit of time focusing on him and what he did and how that applies to us. But apart from the historical context you get get a bit of an idea that there's trouble going to happen in human history from this point forward. You get a hint that there's going to be particular trouble for God's people. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be oppressed by nations above them. Pretty much from the time of Daniel onwards, because remember, Daniel was 
part of a people who were in exile in the kingdom of Babylon, which is a long way from Jerusalem, pretty much from that time onwards, God's people, the Jews, were ruled by other nations. Other superpowers held them under them. And so there is this expectation that there will always be human superpowers in some form or another ruling over God's people. But then we see another picture. We see another picture that God himself is able to bring these kingdoms down at the exact appointed time. God will restore things to their rightful state, verse 14 tells us. And it is by no human hand that those who oppose God will be brought down. So the book of Daniel, and particularly this chapter, gives us two pictures. One is this ongoing plight of human evil, which is actually particularly directed against God's people and against God. That's that's one thing in particular we see. On the other hand, we see a God who defeats evil and rules over them and brings things into their right order or their rightful state at the right time. Now, one of the great things about the book of Daniel is it speaks hope to people who are living in troubled times. It speaks hope to people who are living in troubled times. This vision was for Israel, for what they were about to go through and experience. They were going to have kingdom after kingdom rule over them, some very violent and brutal, and yet their God would rule over them and destroy evil and keep them, a remnant of them faithful to him. And likewise today, we feel like we are in troubled times, particularly if we're religious or Christian. In the West, we feel like religion is getting squeezed out by a secular secularism and secular worldview. And so our hope, our level of hope, has tended to diminish. What I want to do this morning is encourage you to have hope in troubled times. And I want to use a metaphor of your heart rate. Now, I... Um, I got a special watch for my birthday this year that measures my heart rate, which is a very interesting thing. And so when your heart rate is high, it will tell you, or low, it will tell you. And this morning, I want to affect your spiritual heart rate. I want to affect your spiritual heart rate because for some of us, it needs to decrease. We are way too anxious about the state of the world. For some of us, we don't care enough. And so our heart rate needs to go up. And for some of us, we need to get the defibrillator out. Oh, I didn't say that right. Can someone help me? Defibrillator? I got it. Defibrillator. Get the defibrillator out and give us a zap so that we come alive. All right. So number one, in order to give us hope in troubled times, I want you not to be surprised by the truth of what's going on not to be surprised by the truth of what's going on. I want to bring your spiritual heart rate down. The truth of troubled times, and we see this uh, in verse 12, is that people and kingdoms will rise up and they will act to throw truth to the ground. Throw truth to the ground. We see that in our text. It says, someone 
will rise up and an enemy, uh, an enemy king, an enemy nation against God's people and will particularly set themselves against truth. And this is not just general truth. This is the truth of God and his word. We know this because uh, during the reign of this uh, Greek king, this Antiochus Epiphanes IV, this is what is written about uh, what happened then. This is in uh, 1 Maccabees. It says, The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and they burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone that adhered to the law was condemned to death by the decree of the king. So pretty much, if you wanted to be a practicing Jew, your life was on the line when Antiochus Epiphanes IV was uh, the reigning king over uh, Israel. Now remember, Antiochus Epiphanes was an emperor over all of the lands that the, uh, the Greeks uh, owned or had conquered. And he said, if anyone wants to practice true religion, they will be killed. They will be condemned to death. Even if they possess God's word, they will be condemned to death. And anywhere they found it, they destroyed it. This is what is at stake. So truth, as in God's truth, is going to be in jeopardy. Now, the reason why Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes IV uh, went around, you know, bringing down uh, the kingdom of Israel and bringing down other nations because he believed that the Greek way of life and the Greek philosophy needed to be everywhere in the world. Some Greek people still believe that. Good on you. <laughs> but the, the basic philosophy was anyone who did not submit to Greek religion would also be destroyed. There was a brainwashing that went on and a cultural um, destruction for anyone else who would oppose this Greek empire. And the first thing to go was the truth of God's word. Now, this uh, is quite interesting because even today, it seems like there is a similar program on in our secular Western world. People are opposed not just to general truth, but to the truth of God's word in particular. In fact, today, the practice of biblical Christianity is increasingly opposed, not just by culture, but by government. So what we're seeing here is actually very similar to what we see in history and foretold. Remember, this was many centuries before it happened. We're seeing similar events today. Uh, Christian theologian, Australian Christian theologian and pastor Stephen McAlpine, uh, in his new book, The Bad Guys, describes this progression that we've seen over the past century in regards to Christianity. Culture uh, in the West has actually typically seen, uh, like about a century ago, so Christianity is the good guys. And so, you know, when society was becoming immoral, begrudgingly, people would acknowledge that Christianity actually produces a social and a cultural good. And so Christians were typically the good guys. We'd seen these great awakenings and revivals and people behaving better and losing their bad morality and replacing it with good morality. But then, uh, over the past sort of 50 years or so, that has changed. 
And Christianity just became, went from being the good guys to just being one of the guys. So, you know, Christianity, that's good for you, but, you know, there might be other ways to produce a moral and social good in our culture. And now, Christianity and those who practice biblical Christianity are considered the bad guys. It's actually changed again. Many Christians who believe the biblical truth about many things, particularly hot-button issues like gender and sexuality, are considered dangerous. Not just one option of many, dangerous to our current culture and society. And so Christians are now considered the bad guys. And there's been a cultural progression towards it. And it's funny because the same thing happened during the Greek Empire. During uh, this Greek Empire, it was t- Christianity was tolerated. They were allowed to have their own rules and their own culture and practice until Antiochus Epiphanes IV rose up and he said no. They wanted to Hellenize the world, make everyone believe what he believed and what his uh, way of thinking was. And so he brought them down to his level. He said truth will be thrown out and be replaced with his way of thinking. Now, I say this because we should not be surprised. Christians should not be surprised, but we act surprised. We are sometimes outraged, and sometimes rightly so, but sometimes, I think, over the top. We are outraged that society is changing. It seems unusual to us that a world which is very secular in its beliefs, that it doesn't believe in a higher power or God, doesn't believe in the truth of God's word, would become not just, you know, ignorant of Christianity, but anti of Christianity. The Bible tells us we should not be surprised. It's going to happen. Jesus taught this many times. He said, if, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. The great symbol of following Jesus is a cross. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we are now the bad guys, though we believe that God is good and he's doing good through his people. One of the other things the text encourages us in is that God will actually limit the persecution of his people. We see this in verse 14. Things will be restored to their rightful state after a certain period of time. It says, uh, after 2,300 evenings and mornings. These things will end. There is a limit to human evil and persecution of God's people. But there is something clear also in our texts. So we shouldn't be surprised there is a limit, but there's something very clear in our text, and this is something that is often overlooked by many, is that the attack against uh, God is targeted and specific against his people. That is, the nations of this world, right? the nations of this world who are ruled by humans and uh, the human kingdoms of this world are under the rule of the enemy of God's people, Satan. There is a spiritual war behind the scenes. Whilst God is on his throne, human kingdoms are arrayed against God and God's people. And there is this constant, and you see it throughout history. 
this constant rise of human power against God, and it follows the exact same cycle almost every time, particularly in cultures that have had Christianity as some influence of Christianity. Christianity is seen as good, then they're indifferent to it, then they're against it, and they begin to persecute Christians. And you see this same pattern again and again and again. Human evil is directly targeted against God's people and God himself. We can't ignore that. So this makes things a little bit complicated because when you say, well, you know, they're not targeting Christians, well, they may not think they are, but they are. When you think that the world isn't against Christians, they're probably ignorant of it, but behind the scenes, the evil forces of this world are targeting God's people and seeking to bring down the truth of God's word. That is what's going on. So, this is the truth of the times that we're in. It could be a bleak picture. I mean, Daniel wasn't happy about it. Look at verse 27. He was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then at the end, he was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel wasn't happy about uh, this vision that he'd received from God about the reality of what's going on. You might have suspected that God is against, uh, that you know, the enemy is against God's people, that the, th- no, the movements in the world are specifically targeted against Christians. You may have suspected it. The truth is, yes, it is. But there's more to the story. The point of this text is not to leave us where Daniel was, appalled by it and not understanding it. The point of this text is to encourage us and to give us hope. What I don't want you to do this morning is to listen to the confusion of this world and to think, "Uh uh-oh, everything's going to fall apart. Because it's not. The culmination of this text is God will break evil down and destroy it. God will win. He will have a great victory. So do not be consumed by fear. Do not be consumed when you don't understand the way the world is going. In fact, I think there are several positive aspects to this change that we're seeing culturally at the moment. Let me just point out a few. First positive aspect to this is that we are more akin now culturally to the times of the New Testament. That is, when the New Testament was written, people were generally you know, ignorant of Christianity, and then eventually they became opposing towards Christianity and began to persecute Christians, and much of the New Testament was written in that environment. Guess what? We're becoming more like them. What does that mean? You can jump directly from the way that Christians felt in the New Testament to how we're feeling now, and you will feel a sense of kinship towards the Christians of the first century, and God's Word may have a greater effect upon you. That's the first encouragement. The second encouraging thing about a time like this is we can cling to the promises of God without the trap of a culturally compromised nominal Christianity. When Christianity is supported by the state or the culture, it's very dangerous for for true biblical Christianity. Why? Because there's something in it for you if you believe. You know, Uh, There was a time when people would 
try and become ministers or pastors because, you know, it was said to pay well. Uh, it was said that you'd be well looked upon and you'd have a comfortable and easy life. And so you know, droves of people entering the ministry who weren't even Christians. They didn't really believe it. There was nothing going on in their heart. But what's happening now is getting rid of nominal Christianity and it is good. That's the second thing. The third is that loving your enemies in a culture that opposes Christianity far better reflects Jesus, our Saviour. It's easy to love your enemies when they kind of like you too. But it isn't when they don't. It's hard to love people who generally think that Christians are ignorant, their beliefs are dangerous, and that we should get rid of them or get rid of their beliefs. We should outlaw them. It's much harder to love people like that. So you must depend on the love that God gives you than to truly love people. And you're not loving people to get something from them either. You're just loving them because God loves you. And so he's put that love into your heart. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is that times like this train Christians to be warriors of courage trained by spiritual warfare to stand firm. If you noticed, there's continual stories of Christians falling away from the faith. You might know people who've fallen away from the faith recently. And that's because their Christianity is not holding up. And yet those that are standing firm and continuing to say, I'm a Christian in a workplace where you are almost forced to give your proper pronouns, even though you don't agree with that sentiment, where you're forced to do gender and inclusivity training when you don't agree with the content. We're forced to do all sorts of different stuff that you don't really want to do and be a Christian witness and say, I'm a Christian and I believe different things. We are being trained to stand firm. People don't get stronger without a bit of pressure. So the church is being strengthened. Number five... I think this is good because Christians are becoming far clearer and sharper on salvation and what it means and also living as God's people without the protections of culture. Christianity has become, I think, far too soft in the West and anemic in many ways because we're not nearly as sharp as evangelism as we should be and out there loving and caring for people as we should be. But these sorts of conditions are like a strength training program for the church where we get sharp on what we're really on about. And that if you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, and you cling to that, you'll be far stronger in that through these cultural conditions. And finally, this is one, another encouragement from these times, is that... uh, In the first century, Christians were laughed at because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And and they they thought, and the leaders met, we see this early in the book of Acts, and said, this thing will fail. You know, there's been many many new religions or new religious groups that have popped up and they've all failed. And particularly one that believes in someone risen from the dead, surely that will fail. And what happened, Christianity grew from the grassroots level and took over the world. And we have the same prospect for us in this generation, that Christianity can grow from the grassroots level. Why? Because we believe in the resurrection 
of the Son of God. And that is our strength. And that is our power source and not a culture which seems to support Christianity. So I don't want you to be surprised by what's going on in the world. I want you to have hope that God is doing good, though it may well get more difficult for Christians in the generation to come. For the first time, uh, I think it was earlier this year, our former Prime Minister said, things are going to get more difficult for Australians into the future. Our standard of living is going to go down. And he was actually right for the most part. We're feeling it a little bit at the moment with inflation going up uh, and life just becoming a little bit more difficult slightly. But I want to say something similar for the church. Things are going to get a bit more difficult, I suspect. And we need to see what God is doing in the midst of it. Okay. I don't want you to be surprised by the truth of the times, but I do want you, I do want you to see a future hope. I do want you to see a future hope. You know, the historical events that are mentioned here are very, very interesting, and it does zoom in particularly on, as I said earlier, this Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, this Greek emperor who was ruling over Israel and didn't, didn't like that they were still following their own God, and so he wanted to impose his own God upon them. As we said earlier, previously other you know, Greek kings had tolerated Judaism, they tolerated Israel, but now they wanted to crush them. This is what, uh, this is what it said happened as the program of Hellenization or making them Greek uh, happened in Jerusalem. This is from 2 Maccabees 5, it says... When these happenings reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt, raging like a wild animal. This is speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He sent out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days... 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number been sold into slavery. God's people knew that Antiochus Epiphanes IV was after them, and they tried to fight back, and he came and rained terror upon them. That is what is described in our text as the transgression that makes desolate. That is what is described as in the text as the one who would... Uh, take away the regular burnt offering, the place of the sanctuary would be overthrown and the persecution of Christians. It did happen and it was terrible. In uh, 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes IV entered, ordered the end of temple sacrifice. You cannot practice your religion at all. He set up an idol of Zeus, as in the chief Greek god in the temple, And then he sacrificed pigs to Zeus in the temple. And remember, a pig was was not allowed anywhere near uh, God's people, let alone the temple, according to Judaism. On top of that, a citadel was erected in Jerusalem, a fortress. And this fortress was erected in Jerusalem, which would be a stronghold for Hellenized Jews. That is, Jewish people who had given in and said, I will accept this 
uh, way of thinking. I will ditch the law, I'll ditch my old religion, and I will believe in whatever the Greeks tell me to believe. And so they set up a stronghold for them so that they would have dominance in the culture. Can you imagine being a Jewish person who still believed then? Your temple has been destroyed. Your practice, the practice of your religion has been outlawed. Anyone who has any of the scriptures, they are captured, killed, and the scriptures are burnt and destroyed. And those that have control and power are the people who have given in. They've given up. They've said, I'll accept whatever they want me to do. That is how they felt. And yet God wanted them to have hope. One of the refrains uh, we see in the text uh, in verse 13 is, for how long? For how long will this go on? Reminds me of Psalm 13. It says, how long, O Lord? When God's people have been oppressed, they often ask God, how long will this go on? And the answer is actually in our text. It says, when the fullness of the desecration is complete, this is referring to what Antiochus Epiphanes IV did, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. God will restore things. He will fix them. So these persecutions are limited by God's sovereignty, but they still happen. What happened in history after this? Well, interestingly, it says, that, it says in our text that Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who's probably talking about in verse 25, will be broken by no human hand. And it seems that Antiochus Epiphanes IV died of a very unusual bowel disease. He was uh, someone who was said to have um, split open the abdomen of uh, thousands of God's people in Jerusalem as he was persecuting them. Uh, but then he himself su suffered a very unusual bout as he, so much so that he had to depart in shame from his soldiers because he stank so much. And then eventually he died of this disease. And so it was, it was written in the, um, in the book of Maccabees that... Uh, this was God's judgment from this very text upon that man, that it was a strange and unusual disease and he died in shame and exile from his people, utterly humbled before them. So God did end the persecution of his people uh, in the mid-2nd century BC. Well, what happened after that? Well, after that, uh, we, we know historically that the Greek Empire fell to the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was bigger and more powerful than any other empire before it. Uh, and the Roman Empire uh, was actually happy with other uh, nations having their rules and their laws and that kind of thing, and so permitted them. So we see this same kind of rise and fall. There's this uh, rise of opposition towards Christianity, then God intervenes, it seems, and it falls. And then there's a support of Christianity or a tolerance of Christianity by the Roman Empire. And I wonder what's coming. And during this time of tolerance to the Roman Empire, uh, someone, uh, a local king, rose up called Herod the Great. And he rebuilt the temple. Which is interesting because it says here that the sanctuary shall be referred, restored to its rightful state. So Herod rebuilt the temple. But Herod was not a believer. 
he expanded the uh, temple to double its size in Jerusalem, and yet he was not a believer. He was using this temple to have an internal hold on God's people. So I think technically, whilst the temple was rebuilt, it was not in its rightful state. And that is why in John chapter 2, Jesus turns up to the temple and starts flipping tables. Jesus turns up to the temple in John chapter 2, the Son of God. He makes a whip out of cords and drives people out of the temple, this expanded temple. Why does he do that? Well, we read uh, from John chapter 2 why he did it. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, the temple was still being abused. The temple was still being misused by foreign powers who wanted to subjugate God's people. They set it up so it was like a market stall. People could buy and sell things. You know, it was all about making money and making sure that the religion kept going, but the worship and centrality of God was gone until God himself turned up in Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? There's a new temple here. He himself is the temple. Jesus said, I have become the place of worship. I have become the place of sacrifice where people are made right with God uh, by sacrifice to atone for their sins. And I will be the and I will, my body will be destroyed and in three days I'll raise it up again. Jesus is saying there is a new place for people to worship him. So this is fascinating because the text talks about, and really the centre of this text in Daniel chapter 8 is about uh, the sanctuary or the place of worship and sacrifice of God's people being restored. But Jesus said it must be destroyed and a new one must take its place. And that one is Jesus Christ himself. And so the whole point of this text and the reason why I believe that Daniel was still appalled by the vision and did not understand it, is because it hadn't been fulfilled yet. He hadn't seen where all this was going. This was all going that Jesus will create a new way for God's people to live rightly before him, to have hope. And it wouldn't be through having physical power or even a physical temple. Would you believe it? And that's why this is very good for us. Because the days may come when we can't even meet in church buildings anymore. Let's be honest. There's many places in the world where they can't. The day may come very soon. And God wants us to be prepared for this, just like God wanted his people then to be prepared for what would happen to them. And so our center of worship must be somewhere else. Our center of worship must be on someone whom we can't see. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Our centre of worship must be on him. 
I was listening to an interview uh, of a guy called Tony Hoang. And Tony uh, was a Vietnamese um, refugee uh, to Australia and uh, grew up in Sydney and had a really, uh, really shocking uh, life. He was one of ten children. Uh, sort of four of his sisters um, came over on the boat with his parents and they settled in Sydney and you know, dad was working all the time. Dad beat up mum uh, almost every night and, you know, he didn't speak a word of English when he got sent to school. And so he just felt this constant sense of hopelessness. He even said that from about six years old onward, he felt depressed because no one cared for him. His dad would beat him up and was never there. Uh, and they never had anyone truly to just show an interest in them. And the way he described his depression was the inability to construct a future. Without um, love and acceptance, Tony actually turned to his peers for love and acceptance. And uh, his uh, brothers had gotten involved in local gangs. And so he found a community and he found people who would accept him in local gangs. And after a short amount of time, uh, he became a key gang member at the age of 11. And by the age of 13, he had his own drug house. And by the age of 16, he was earning $10,000 a week by collecting uh, heroin and cutting it up and selling it to drug dealers all across Sydney. But Tony says that he was dead inside. Whilst he knew, whilst he, you know, had all the appearances of wealth and, you know, um, people who accepted him and perhaps looked after him, he felt a deep hole in his heart and a lack of love. He said all he really wanted was someone who would really love and take care of him. He describes going out uh, with a bag of machetes in the car or a handgun in his pocket uh, to deal to people whom the gang would call up and ask him to take care of. Over and over again, he saw six of his friends uh, vic uh, permanent victims to heroin by the age of 21. Now, the interesting thing about Tony was that he went to church every Sunday. His family were staunch Catholics. And so wherever he was, whatever he was doing, no matter how scattered or stoned he was, he would be at church every Sunday. Every Sunday. But he said religion had totally failed him. And so at 21, he'd reached rock bottom. His best friend had just died because of heroin. And he was an addict himself. And he went to a church, sat in there and said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm ready to give up. I've got nothing left to live for. Will you help me? And the next day, and he said, he pleaded with God. He said, Look, God, I need a sign. I need something just to know that you're real, that you're there. The next day he went out. I uh, was just walking uh, near his house and uh, there were some Christians there and they were rapping and he thought, this is really strange, Christians rapping and he knew one of the beats. He was pretty happy about that and they handed out a flyer and on the flyer it said, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. You can come to God today. And so he did. On the spot, uh, Tony realised that God had answered his prayer. He became a Christian right then and there. And now uh, Tony is actually a pastor 
in Sydney. Uh, he serves helping people not become like he was and find the love and acceptance that he has received through faith in Jesus Christ. But the key thing I want to point out uh, from Tony's story is going to religion every Sunday didn't cut it when he was in troubled times. It wasn't enough. Going to church every Sunday didn't really change him. And I want to say the same thing as in our text today, that going, just going to the temple, looking to the temple, would not be enough for God's people because the temple wasn't in its rightful state when uh, Daniel was, uh, had this vision. They were in Babylon. They had no temple. You know, when they were ruled by other nations and the, te- and the temple was, had been rebuilt by Herod and it was all um, corrupt. The, they couldn't depend on the temple. What did God's people have to depend on? God himself. And so when Jesus comes and he says there's a new way, there's a new temple and it's him and it's through faith in him, we must recognize that our faith will not stand if we keep trying to grow it through just going to a temple, through going through the religious motions. It won't change and transform us, and it won't keep us going in troubled times. What will keep us going is coming to Jesus, coming to the one described here as the Prince. And the fascinating thing about Tony's story is he, one of the Christians uh, that he met early on uh, said to him, Look, Tony, I know you're in all sorts of trouble. You're going through some stuff. You can call me any time. And so within a couple of weeks of Tony being a Christian, it was 3 a.m. He was really struggling with depressive thoughts. And he called this guy at 3 a.m. and he came. This guy had kids and lived 45 minutes away. And he took the call and came at 3 a.m. And Tony said, that was the thing that made me realise that God was going to stick with me when his people went out of their way to help And so there is this depth that Christianity must have in our lives that we would be able to share that hope with others. If you want to be a Christian with hope, you've got to cling to Jesus and not to regular religious practices. But if you want to affect others with the hope that God has given you, you've got to be willing to become uncomfortable for them. You've got to be willing to step out of your comfort zone, be the person that says, call me anytime, and then get up at 3 a.m. and go and help that person. Because that is what will really make a difference for people in troubled times. Because you know what? The culture doesn't care about what Christians think. They don't want to know about it. But if you'll love them, if you'll show God's power and love to them, then they'll get it. All right, let me pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us uh, about what Jesus has done through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold firm to you in troubled times. We need your grace and power to work in our lives by your spirit. We can't do this alone. And so we pray that you would move in us today. We pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen.